You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. The nice thing, if there can be one, about this threatened pandemic is it might bring base metals and industrial materials down to the price where they're really, truly, stupidly cheap. So it could be that we could, as a group, enjoy a two or three or four year bull market in precious metals, and maybe one or two years into it, the recovery, the beginnings of a bull market in industrial materials. I'm not saying that's gonna happen, but the idea that we face a bull market and then a bull market uh, is, at the end of my career, which is what I'm at, uh, an extraordinarily pleasant set of circumstances to look forward to. Thank you for tuning in to another Mining Stock Education episode. I am your host, Bill Powers, and I am reporting from the city of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. I'm here attending the PDAC, the Prospectors, Developers, and Association of Canada. However, I'm not at the convention center right now. I took a nice walk in the rain down to the Sprott headquarters here on Bay Street in order to speak with Rick Rule, and he is the guest that I bring you on today's show. However, I did want to make you aware that my friend Brian Lenny of juniorstockreview.com just launched a premium subscription service. Go over there and check it out. Brian is an engineer by trade. However, he discovered mining stocks over a decade ago, ended up selling his house to prepare for the expected upturn, and then taking the majority of the capital from the sale of his house with his wife's permission, tripled that money in 2016, and that launched him into a full-time career of investing in junior mining stocks. That's the means by which he supported his family, and now he has launched a premium subscription, and he is giving my listeners 40% off for the month of March only if you use my my last name, Powers, P is in Paul, O-W-E-R-S. You can get 40% off of Brian's newly launched subscription service. A number of you have been emailing me, asking me to comment on specific companies in your portfolio. And uh, I'm flattered that you would reach out to me. However, I'm not a financial advisor, nor do I feel qualified to give all of my listeners advice on specific companies. However, I am sitting down with somebody today whose company does offer that service. And if you want to email rankings at sprottglobal.com, I'm Rick Rule, the company he works for, rankings at sprottglobal.com. In the body of the email, put the ticker symbol and the name of the company. Don't send an attachment, but if you put the ticker symbol and the name of the company to rankings at sprottglobal.com, Rick and his team will respond and give you feedback on your uh, portfolio and the positions that you have. So Rick, thanks again for joining me today. As we saw gold stocks sell off last week, I'm interested to get a broker's perspective. Do you feel uh, that you have educated? Education is a big part of what you do at Sprott. Your clients enough to where you won't get the panic calls on a day like uh, last Friday, or how do you feel that? We have enough clients that of course we get panic calls. We also got clients saying, you know, I've been waiting for this now for a year and a half. Let's go to work. So we get both. The truth is that uh, unlike most of our competitors in the mining stock business, we continued to build and expand for the last 10 years. The consequence of that is that we have lots of clients, big ones, little ones. To paraphrase the movie, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Was there panic? Absolutely. Uh, Was there ambition? Absolutely. Lots of both, and that's what a market's about. When your brokers advise your clients, do they generate a specific potential buy list for days like we saw on last Friday? No, because there is no one-size-fits-all. 
we have clients for whom probably only the best and the most liquid names are suitable. Uh, we have some clients that I even advise not to buy the ETF, not to try and achieve market beta, but rather to buy the four or five best stocks in the world, which is safer, in fact, than the ETF. We have other clients who are hyper, hyper, hyper speculative. So the idea that there would be a top-down driven buy list at Sprott uh, in its existence would obviate the best part of Sprott, which is the salesperson looking at the individual needs and prejudices of the client and employing all of the intellectual capital at, Spr at Sprott to create bespoke investment solutions, which is what we try to do. Uh, I have been part of brokerage firms before that had, if you will, top-down intellectual management. And from my point of view, that's corrupt. I know from talking to a lot of the brokers that do work for Sprott, you do a lot of fundamental bottom-up analysis, but the technical people that work, that do technical analysis at Sprott, do they feel like there was permanent, or at least in the short term, damage done from a technical standpoint to the sector? I think there's no doubt that there was technical damage done to the sector. Um, the truth is, however, that uh, technical analysis is in many ways, uh, particularly when the market volatility is the way it is today, uh, partly a function of polishing the hell out of the rearview mirror. <laughs> and, you know, you can have a rebound, and I'm not saying you will, you can have a rebound that can obviate whatever technical conclusions one drew in very, very quick fashion. Uh, the VIX is an example trading above 30 is almost historically high vo uh, volatility, which means that the technical al analysis in this type of market uh, probably is rear rather than forward looking. Rick, I've heard you say on numerous occasions that a small mine or a small project has all the potential hiccups and problems of a big project, yet it doesn't possess that big potential upside. So in light of that statement and truth, my question is, when you have like a small producer that maybe is bringing some old heaps into production and they are, or maybe a small deposit and they're self-funding their exploration and the majority of the upside that they pre present to the market as a potential value proposition deals with the exploration upside on on a non-dilutive basis. Even though they're a smaller company, would you go for one of these? Very, very, very infrequently. Maybe if it had the name Mandalay in front where they had done it in the past. In my experience, Bill, the skill sets involved in exploring and then building and then operating are different skill sets. And the idea that I would have sufficient intellectual capital in one wrapper at a general and administrative expense charge that I could afford, small. It's happened before. Certainly, Glamis was built in that fashion. Certainly, Rare Rock Yellowknife was built in that fashion. Certainly, Mandalay was built in that fashion. But the fact that I've been in the business 45 years and I know three times it worked it tells me something about the probability that that's going to work out for me. I am interested in established small mines if I have reason to believe that they'll be consolidated. That is, if I have reason to believe that the management team has the investor's best interest at heart uh, rather than their own salary and emoluments at heart. Unfortunately, those are very rare, too. You've been on record saying that when you do a private placement, you want the warrant for that additional upside. However, there's those that argue that they don't want to participate in private placements with the warrant. They would rather have a deal done at a discount to, uh, to the market so that there's not the warrant stripping that occurs after the four months is off and that there's less dilution. Uh, what would be your response when you're dialoguing with those people? 
people? I think they're both viable strategies. The people who don't want warrants are, for the most part, traders. People who are interested in short-term price escalation, and the warrant, of course, serves as a damper to that. <clears throat> if you have a, if your orientation is a twenty-five thousand dollar position or a fifty thousand dollar position, a sophisticated high net worth investor position, I can understand that. My job is to move the dial at Sprott, uh, which means that typically I'm taking a million dollar position or a five million dollar position. So liquidity means less to me because I can't employ it. I have to be right, not right in the market. And <clears throat> the process of being right in exploration is that you have to be wrong a few times before you can be right, which means that your winners have to amortize your losers. And the best way to do that is a warrant. So I can certainly see from the point of view of a technical trader or a stock trader or somebody whose orientation in the stock is four months or five months or six months, why you would object to doing a warrant deal because it puts a cap on the, on the stock. From my point of view, where the liquidity and the trading characteristics matter less and success or failure matters more, warrants amplify my success. I have to have them. Have you done a study regarding the private placements that you've done with warrants and how many times you actually got to exercise those warrants? Yeah, of course, that depends on the market. There are circumstances in a good market where uh, you've heard me say in the past that I'm interested in the value of the unanswered question. There are times in the past in bull markets where stocks have achieved valuations that I would have expected after getting the answer to a question before the question was asked. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful circumstances. And so in those markets, sometimes the warrants have been an absolute gift because nothing happened and I still made money in the warrants. There have been other markets where we have done everything right, enjoyed exploration success, and the warrants have still expired worthless. Uh, there are circumstances from my past. I'm thinking Francisco Gold, uh, oh God, Pan American, Silver Standard, where warrants probably generated 50% of the return on capital employed that we enjoyed. If you think about the simple arithmetic, a dollar stock with a dollar fifty warrant that enjoys exploration, exploration success and goes to say five dollars, you have four four dollars worth of profit on the primary stock, and you have three dollars and fifty cents on the warrant that, in effect, you didn't pay for. It turns, uh, you know, a four bagger into a seven and a half bagger. And statistically, uh, when your expectation is failure, which it is in exploration. Uh, that's the difference over time between an acceptable rate of return and an unacceptable rate of return. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Arcana Corporation is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginius Mine in Colorado has proven improbable silver reserves grading nearly 37 ounces per ton silver with an all-in sustaining production cost of only US $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully permitted with infrastructure already in place and the company has announced they plan to commence production in 2020. Achieving successful production usually results in a significant up share price re-rating on the Lasan curve. Arcana trades under the ticker AUN in Toronto and AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A-U-R-C-A-N-A.com. You point out frequently the excesses in terms of general and administrative fees that pre-revenue explorers engage in spending a lot of their money not in the ground. On this show over the years that I've been interviewing people, I've been told that 80% of the money should go into the ground in an ideal situation. When you have invested in those explorers that have made significant discoveries, what 
percentage of their uh, ex- expenditures would be in GNA for those successful explorers? Because of the increasing expense running a public company, um, we tolerate up to 25% of total expenditures in general and administrative expense. What we're interested in is the part of general and administrative expense that goes into executive salary and emolument needs to be uh, proportional to the equity interest that the management team has in the company. If the managers own very little stock, if their equity is by way of options, and they're getting paid a lot of money, they aren't incented to uh, achieve. They're incented to exist, and while their existence is interesting to me, it's not important to me. So we're interested in the uh, distribution of their benefit, if you if you follow the way I'm the way I'm going. The truth is, Bill, that um, the industry is amazingly tenacious. The idea that so many juniors survived the last seven or eight years is absolutely astonishing. <clears throat> it's also unfortunate. Uh, the business would profit by having many, many, many fewer listings. All that money that the industry consumes every year in GNA truly goes to money heaven rather than going in the ground. And that is not good for the industry, uh, and it's uh, not good for the investment community. Rick, last year I watched a small explorer raise a million dollars, and shortly thereafter they paid a promoter a quarter million of the million, which I thought was outrageous. So what I did was uh, look at the insider trading afterwards, and a lot of that wasn't reported. So my question to you is, for the average retail resource investors listening to us in this discussion right now, how could they do further research? I mean, is there any way to track that company out in the Cayman Islands? I mean, it didn't make any sense why you would spend a quarter of your raise, not putting it in the ground, but on paying a high excitement, rev it up type promoter. I don't think you need to do additional due diligence. The management team has shown their intention. From their point of view, the highest return on capital employed is paper. Uh, not exploration. It shows that the, that company is a construct. It's not an exploration vehicle. It's a paper construct. And while it might be interesting or amusing to do further due diligence, I think it's a waste of time. You already have the answer in your hand. If they raised a million dollars and it costs half a million dollars a year to keep a public company alive and then they spend a quarter million dollars on promotion, what it says is that they believe that they're exploration potential is worth about $250,000. Now let's assume just for a second that that company has a $10 million market cap. It has a $10 million market cap with an expected net present value according to management of $250,000. Do we really need to do more due diligence? It might be amusing, it might be a way that you use up some intern's time, but really all you need to know in a circumstance like that is the intention and the value orientation of the management team which is to say corrupt. I've interviewed analysts on this show, and one analyst I interview, his pet peeve is when management extends the options, the time period for the options. Uh, What's your take on that? Um, If I do a private placement, I often specify in the private placement document that if management extends and reprices their options, they have to extend and reprice my warrants. Uh, That's a lot of fun doing that, Uh, and that keeps them honest. Uh, I... In the right set of circumstances where the management team, as an example, has participated 
in a private placement that felt like a rights offering. In other words, where they write a check, uh, I'm willing to tolerate uh, options repricing. But basically, the idea that somebody gets uh, paid to underperform is, on the face of it, objectionable. When you're looking at a recently IPO'd uh, deal, and maybe they're doing their first financing after the IPO, how long do you want to see those cheap founders shared as mandatory escrowed? I don't care, really. Um, what bothers me more is the lift. Uh, we're seeing now these new constructs coming out. I'm not saying they're all done by bad people. But the ethos in Vancouver, as an example, seems to be that the standard is that the insiders issue themselves some number of shares, five million, and then they issue a so-called bargain round at a nickel or a dime. Now, when I run an investment vehicle and I charge a one and a half percent management fee, and I get a fifteen percent performance fee over an eight percent hurdle, people say it's egregious. But these guys are marking up their paper four or five hundred percent out of the gate um, with no hurdle. This is truly insane. Um, the idea that they made themselves a bunch of stock at a penny and they're going to do me a favor by selling me some at a dime? What kind of favor is that? It's a thousand percent lift. Uh, you know, I would urge all of your listeners to um, employ arithmetic as a substitute for narrative when they're looking at these newly minted companies. What, you know, a guy will say, well, you know, this thing is cheap. The market cap is $5 million. Okay, what do I get for $5 million? $750,000 cash, a property that they bought for $100,000, and the right to lose $500,000 a year in GNA. How much should I pay to lose $500,000 a year? Should I pay $5 million? Should I pay $10 million? What is a cheap way to lose money? Uh, the opposite company to a company you just described is a royalty company. And I was going over our notes. And at the last PDAC a year ago, you mentioned you were deploying capital into the royalty companies. So I've heard some people say that they think relative to the sector as a whole, the royalty companies are overvalued. What would be your response to someone like that? Uh, they're right, uh, but they're still cheap in, in, in an odd sense. You know, if you have an industry, well, if you have an industry that first of all destroys capital, like the mining business, but if you take a better part of the minute, uh, better part of the industry where the return on capital employed over the last decade is sort of 11, 12, 13 percent, and you compare that to a royalty company that is earning 80 or 85 percent margins, you would pay more for an 85 percent margin business than you would a 15 percent margin business. I mean, it makes absolute statistical sense that you do that. Um, what is going to be problematic now with the royalty and streaming companies is that they've enjoyed so much market favor that everybody is starting them. And the ones that are coming into the business now do not have the advantage of a low cost of capital like Franco or Wheaton. They don't have a deep pipeline like, as an example, Sandstorm. Uh, they're Johnny-come-latelys. There are people that are starting royalty and streaming companies because it's the only way they can raise money. And the fact that there's probably 10 or 15 in the process of being minted today tells you that competition for the very low end of the royalty and streaming business, which is where these guys are going to have to concentrate, is going to become ferocious. So not all royalty and streaming companies are the same. When you think about the franchise, the broad franchise is great. But remember, there's no substitute for individual security analysis within that franchise. 
About three years ago, I interviewed one of your brokers, Steve Tataruk, from my show, and I remember talking to Steve uh, pre-recording, or it could have been after the recording, and I brought up somebody who made a discovery, and they had launched a new company, and I remember him being adamant advising me, just because they were successful once doesn't mean they'll ever be successful again in their career. How do you reconcile that truth with your truth of follow serially successful people. I guess they're not serially successful if they only have one discovery, or, or what's your commentary here? Well, I think what he said in its own way validated why I said there is no guarantee that anybody's going to be successful. Remember that the odds of success on any individual exploration effort are low. But the truth is that there's a greater probability of success. What he said is true. There's no certainty. There's no certainty in investing. In fact, no certainty in life. So what he said is true, but what I said is more true. Uh, if you look across the length and breadth of the exploration business, what you find is thousands of people that will unfortunately never in their life enjoy success. You find another group of people, sadly, much, much, much smaller, that are successful four, five, four times or five times or six times. When somebody has been a success just once, they get exposed to a virtuous set of circumstances. The consequence of their success, first of all, leaves them well capitalized. So they can write a big enough check to own a lot of their company, which is motivating in and of itself. But secondly, their reputation lowers their cost of capital relative to other people, which is virtuous. It increases their access to intellectual capital because they're known as winners. And the people who would go to work for them see that their cost of capital is lower. And it gives them a broader range of opportunity to acquire properties for the same reason. So what Steve said is true. There's no guarantee of success. But this is a game of compound probabilities. One success itself gives somebody a substantial leg up over their competition two successes begins a franchise and you end up over time finding people like Bob Quartermain, Ross Beattie, Clive Johnson, the Lundines who have been serially successful and from my own experience had I spent the last 40 years uh, just hanging around five or six people that I already did business with 40 years ago and not bother with anybody else I would have worked 10% uh, as hard, and I would have made three times as much money. <laughs> as we uh, look forward to the rest of 2020, Rick, uh, what advice, what key advice would you want to leave with the listeners of my show? Well, the first would be a replay. Pay more attention to uh, arithmetic and reality than you do to narrative. The narrative part is fun. Arithmetic works like this. If you uh, own a stock and you think a stock is fairly priced at a dollar, nothing changes in the company. Uh, except the market's good and the stock goes to $2. You like it. It makes you feel smart. You look at your statement. And the fact that it went from $1 to $2 verifies the narrative. But the truth is, if nothing has happened in the company and the stock goes from $1 to $2, it's arithmetically exactly half as attractive. Conversely, if a stock that you think is worth a dollar falls to 50 cents with no change in the underlying fundamentals, you hate it because you're down 50%. But the truth is that stock is precisely twice as attractive in an arithmetic sense. It's difficult to make your mind wrap itself around the delta between price and value. But to make money successfully over time, that's something that you have to do. The second thing that I would say is uh, after 10 fairly hard years, I think people need to wrap themselves around the fact that we're coming into some pretty good years. First, probably in the precious metals, where I suspect that uh, fiscal policy, among other things, means that the metal will do well, and over time, the shares will catch up. 
<clears throat> I believe that we're headed into a bit of an economic slowdown, and I had expected that the consequence of that would be that base metals and industrial materials would drift lower over time. The current circumstance that we find ourselves in with this bug, the coronavirus, means that that two or three year grinding decline may be forward shifted. We see as an example today uh, about a two and a half million barrel a day shortfall in oil demand, primarily out of China. And the oil price falls from $60, from $60 to $45. The nice thing, if there can be one, about this threatened pandemic is it might bring base metals and industrial materials down to the price where they're really, truly, stupidly cheap. So it could be that we could, as a group, enjoy a two or three or four year bull market in precious metals. And maybe one or two years into it, the recovery, the beginnings of a bull market in industrial materials. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but the idea that we face a bull market and then a bull market uh, is, at the end of my career, which is what I'm at, uh, an extraordinarily pleasant set of circumstances to look forward to. You've been listening to the one and only Rick Rule with Sprott Global USA. Rick, thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own 
own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.